I was thinking this morning of how funny it is that we're starting a book on Second Samuel, which is all about various rival kings assassinating each other at a time when I'm sure there are some people who would really love to do a bit of that themselves. Um, it reminds me of the one show the other day where they were about to review Mary, Queen of Scots, and said, I can't remember the last time that there were uh, a female leader in England, a female leader in Scotland, whose av- closest advisors were working out how to depose them, and, uh, and also about the film. And... Uh, we are starting this, this series looking at the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I want to uh, encourage you to go and grab it. Uh, we should have some at the back. And believe it or not, I actually uh, had three, three Bibles out beside me this morning preparing for this and forgot to bring any of them with me. So if anybody could uh, pass me a Bible, that would be great. I had that sinking feeling where you're leaving the house and you know you've forgotten something but don't know what it is. So uh, we're looking at uh, the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, it's really the second half of Samuel. Uh, for those of you who uh, stay up with contemporary films, you will have noticed there is a trend in contemporary films at the moment for splitting books in two and doing them in two parts. Uh, I'm not sure when it started, but uh, if you follow through, uh, various things, there's a Hunger Games, the final book is split into two. Harry Potter, the final book is split into two. Uh, Avengers is now split into two. It's as if there's too much material to fit into a single film, so they make two films out of one story. And that's what's happening in our books of 1 and 2 Samuel. They're not two different stories. They're one big epic story and uh, they split it in two so that we can fit them into individual books. There's just too much material to deal with. And the main character in these books is King David. I think most of us probably know King David. Uh, Usually we're fan of his early work when he was slaying giants. Uh, but he actually had the rest of his life as well. He was a real man. The guy we're reading about in the story now is not a fictitious person. He's not reimagined. Uh, he is a real uh, guy who actually lived uh, a, a couple of thousand years in the past, about 3,000 years ago. And he really was king over Israel when they've been digging up uh, around Jerusalem. It's not a very easy place to do archaeology, but there's a lot of politics involved. But they found various inscriptions relating to David. And uh, there was a, a revisionist school of thought uh, which took hold in the 20th century. said, no, this guy never lived. And then they dug up all this stuff and people's careers were ended. And it's very sad, but there we go. In fact, that very often happens. You get people who make their careers out of saying that something in the Bible didn't really happen. And then you find a piece of archaeological evidence that shows that it did. I remember when I was at Cambridge, there was a tutor who insisted that Pontius Pilate wasn't a real person. And then one of his students said, but there are three inscriptions about him in the British Museum. And that was that. (laughs) By all means, friends, build yourself an academic career setting yourself against the Bible. All I'm saying is it's always ended in tears in my experience. David was a real guy. And he was a historic king. And yet he's different... We treat him differently from other historic kings. Uh, If you come to this church for the next few years, and I would encourage you to do so, you will hear me speaking about a range of figures, but you won't hear me speaking about Henry VIII, for example, or Mary, Queen of Scots, or Queen Elizabeth II, or King George III. We don't treat every historic king the way that we treat King David. There's something special about him. 
There's a reason why uh, so much of the Bible is dedicated to him and why I spend a significant portion of my life trying to work out why and what he has to say to us today. See, David is important for a couple of reasons that make him different from, for example, Queen Victoria. The first thing is that he shows us Jesus. David teaches us something about Jesus. If you read the stories of Jesus, you'll notice that one of the names that he's called about, he's called by all the time, is the son of David. Now that's not because his dad was called David. But his stepdad was actually Joseph. His adoptive father was Joseph. David was his great, 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 however many greats, grandfather. Yet there's something important about Jesus being the son of David. Because David shows us something of what king God is looking for. He shows us something about Jesus, because Jesus is the son of David. David also shows us, we're going to see in the midst of his life, something about why we need Jesus. He doesn't just tell us something about who Jesus is. He shows us why we need him. The Bible isn't a great fan of hagiography. Uh, Hagiography, this is my big word of the week, is where it comes from the word hagios, from Greek meaning saint or holy, set apart. And it's what we describe where you have a write-up of a life where the person did no wrong. So if you read a biography of somebody and you, hear, you, you, you go into their life and you think, oh goodness me, did, was this person even human? Did they ever do anything wrong? It, it's like they never, they never sneezed, let alone anything else. I mean, you see this very often in politics. Don't you? If you go and you, you speak to Jacob Rees-Mogg, I expect his account of Margaret Thatcher's life would be something of a hagiography. Right? You get the impression this woman never did anything wrong. And if you went to Jeremy Corbyn and asked him about, I don't know, Keir Hardy or Clement Attlee, you might get the same thing. The Bible doesn't really do that. It's very realistic about the people it portrays. And David is a great king. The greatest king in Israel's history. But he's a terribly flawed person. See, he shows us something about Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. He also shows us why we need Jesus. Jesus solves the problem of David. David actually also shows us something of how we should respond to Jesus. The defining comment the Bible makes on David's life is he's a man after God's own heart. He responds to God in the right way. And as we read this book together over the next couple of months, I'm going to be trying to draw out each week those three things. What it is that David shows us about Jesus, how it is David shows us we need Jesus, and how it is that David shows us to respond to Jesus. So... This week we're looking at David before he becomes king. It can be difficult to distill a lunchtime summary, a one-sentence summary from someone's life, especially someone's life as weird as David's. But here's my effort to distill down what I'm going to say into, into one, uh, sorry, two sentences. I've cheated. Two sentences. If you remember nothing else from this morning, take this away. Jesus did what was right... Even when it hurt him, and he did it for you. So don't be tempted to take shortcuts. Jesus did what was right. 
even when it hurt him, and he did it for you. So don't be tempted to take a shortcut. He did what was right even when it hurt him, and he did it for you. So don't be tempted to take shortcuts. We're going to read the Bible now. We're going to read quite a lot of the Bible. Thank you to whoever gave me this. Uh, One thing I want to say as we come into this, this is a PG-rated book. Or in some ways, actually a 15-rated book. I'm warning you about that. If you are of a faint or nervous disposition, this is a trigger warning. These stories are brutal. They can be uncomfortable to read and they can be uncomfortable to process. I am so glad that that is true. The last thing I need for my life is a twee children's book that tells me how to live. I need something that wrestles with the reality of what life is like. We're going to pick our story up in the middle of a civil war, a brutal civil war, and a civil war that's also going on at the same time as a war between two nations. So if you like, there are two wars going on at the same time. One within Israel, and one between Israel and her neighbours. If it seems uncomfortable and brutal and violent for us to read when we live comfortable, peaceful, prosperous lives, then good. Because this is the reality of many people's lives today. But we are the exception. We live in comfortable clothing, in nicely heated uh, buildings where there's no threat of violence to our lives, almost at all. It's not true for most of the world and it's not true for most of history. And the Bible shows us life as it is. I don't want to dwell on that point, but it is important. See, the Bible isn't a tame book. If you're coming here each week or experimenting and hoping to hear something nice, I'm sorry. Heather's voice is nice. The Bible is not very nice. It's good. It's true. It's real. But it's not very nice. Because it deals with us, and we're not very nice. It's not a tame book. There is violence in the world. There are kings and wars and hatred and bitterness and wrangling and grief. And there is justice and hope and despair and there's love and there's death and there's beauty and there's ugliness. And all of it's in here. And as we read, we're going to encompass that. Basically all of this is a trigger warning because someone gets his head locked off and someone else gets his stomach ripped out. Okay, so let's read. We're going to read one, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 1, and I'm going to skip, uh, at the end of verse 15, I'm going to skip forward to 2 Samuel 4, for a reason I'll explain in a minute. Cool. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. They're on the, uh, one of Israel's neighbours. I told you there are several wars going on. Saul was the king before David. He's been chasing David through the desert and trying to kill him at the same time as fighting a battle with uh, Israel's enemies. David is also fighting Israel's enemies and Saul at the same time, or running away from Saul rather. So after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn. Oh no, I haven't put that on screen, sorry. With his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. 
Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. Just happened to be there. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he'd fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the nation of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm a foreigner, a son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David said to one of his men, I called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Okay, now I'm going to skip ahead to Second uh, Samuel chapter 4. Hopefully you'll see as I read this second chapter why I've picked these two together. They bookend, they're almost exactly the same story but dealing with different people. And they enclose the period before David becomes king. So it's important to see what they're saying to us about the kind of king David's going to be. So when Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel became alarmed. Uh, Abner was a general. We'll come back to that next week. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Barna and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Birothite, from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitaim and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Barna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Barna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the, be- his, on the bed in his bedroom. They stabbed and killed him. They cut off his head. Taking it with them, they tra- <laughs> taking it with them, they travelled all night by way of the Arabah. Okay, just to give you some perspective, they're travelling for about two days carrying this guy's head, presumably in a bag. Anyway, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you." This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the King against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Barna, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. 
That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. I did warn you. Then they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. I heard someone breathing out. Yeah, it, it's grim. Uh, I'm now going to read from Luke 4. This is the story of Jesus. You don't need to worry about finding it. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's the beginning of the story of Jesus. After Jesus had been baptised, he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Have a listen to what it is the devil says to him. The devil led him, that's Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's the word of God. Taking shortcuts can be disastrous, however tempting it is. Uh, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the movie Hot Fuzz. It's about a comedy movie, about a very, very competent super cop who goes to work in a village because the rest of his colleagues in the Met Police are are fed up with him making him look bad, making them look bad. He arrests so many people, they don't want him around anymore. And he goes to this village, and the only other policeman there is an incredibly overweight and very incompetent man who's a massive fan of action movies. And they get to the point where they're chasing a shoplifter and they have to decide whether to take a shortcut. I just uh, thought I'd show this as a bit of light relief. Through the gardens. What's the matter, Danny? You've never taken a shortcut before. Shortcuts are tempting, but can be a disaster. The first part of this story is about two political assassinations. That's what's going on in the story we read. If you can get past all of, past all of the weird names and the uh, blood and guts, it's really about two political assassinations. In the first, Saul, David's great enemy, the man got appointed king over Israel who abandoned God and abused his power and then spent the rest of 1 Samuel chasing David through a desert, is killed. He's killed by an Amalekite, who's actually one of Israel's enemies. And the man comes to David and tells him that he's killed Saul. Now, he doesn't kill him in battle. It's not, they're not fighting a war against each other at that point. He kills him in cold blood. 
And he comes up with a story that's more and more implausible the way you, the more you, you read it. In fact, David spots this as a lawyer. I quite like David in this place because he asks, starts to ask the type of questions. You know, the guy says, I just happened to be in the Israelite camp. I just happened to come from there and I just happened to know that Saul's dead. So David asks the first question any good lawyer would, which is how do you know this? And so the story gets more and more outlandish uh, until the point where David pins him down and actually he's killed Saul in cold blood. That's what's happened. Is he's executed Saul and taken the crown off the top of his head. He comes to David. He sort of walks this tightrope between trying to claim responsibility and trying to excuse himself at the same time. Anybody who's had children will, will recognise this pattern of speech. It's one which tries to tell me the good thing they've done without telling me they punched their sister in order to get it. Look, Daddy, I brought your slippers. Why is Abby crying? Oh, well, yes, yeah, she was bringing them to you first, and I pushed her over and took them off her. And so this man dances this kind of uh, line, this tightrope between these two accounts, and comes to David, and what he's really saying is, I have assassinated your enemy, and here's the crown, so give me a reward. I've come to make you king. You can be king in a moment. All you have to do is endorse my murder of your predecessor. So David uh, turns to the guy and says, No, don't you know that this king was God's king? You can't go around assassinating kings. The law is very clear about that. There's a punishment. And even, you know, you're saying I'm king. Well, let me execute justice. And justice means that you ought to be executed under the law at that time, as it was. So David refuses to become king on the back of this man's murder. In the second story, Saul's slightly rubbish successor, Ishbosheth, is assassinated while he sleeps. In an almost kind of comedic way, his assassins go to David with his head and they say, Look, David, we've executed your rival for the throne. Now you can be king. They even close their actions in theological language. Oh, look, we've done God's work by murdering a man in his sleep. And here's his head, and now you can become king. Please, can we have a reward? And David says, well, it's funny you should mention that, because there is a precedent here. The last guy who came to me and asked this ended up executed, and has them executed as well. He has no time for this murderer. That's a bloody story. It's one that rightly should make us feel uncomfortable. Justice often does make people feel uncomfortable. It's why it's hard being a judge. Imagine how David must have uh, felt at the moment the Amalekite fell at his feet. There he is. He spent his whole adult life, having done nothing wrong, hiding in caves from a man he served. As a child, he was told he would be king... And instead, he spent it on the run. He was a great hero who slew Goliath, defeated Israel's enemies, and his reward was to be exiled because the king was worried about him. And now here comes this man, and he literally falls at David's feet. You know, it's so difficult to resist flattery, isn't it? You know, here's this man, there's a guy, he's presumably wearing uh, sweat, and he's a strong guy, I would think. 
He's fallen at David's feet and he says, My Lord the King. My Lord the King. The man who persecuted you is dead and here is his crown. You can reach out and touch it. The very thing God promised you. You can be, it can all end. All of this fleeing through the desert, all of this hiding, all of this people trying to kill you from your own side and from the other side, all of this sleeping and using the toilet in caves, it can all come to an end. Just take the crown. Give me a reward. And it's all over. All you have to do is turn a little bit of a blind eye to me murdering Saul. And after all, didn't he deserve it? And hasn't God promised it to you? Same in the second story. These guys come, they've travelled for two days carrying this bloody head in a bag. And they get to David and it's like, all you've got to do, we've killed the king. we murdered him in his sleep. You don't even have to lift your sword. You don't even have to tell people you told us to do it. You can pretend you had nothing to do with it. Just take the benefit, give us our reward, turn a blind eye, and it'll all be over. And you'll become the most powerful man in the country. Bow down to me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. David doesn't take the shortcut. Instead of seizing the crown and the throne, he actually has their murderers executed. Has the murderers executed. He does what was his duty as the king. His duty as the king is to make sure the law is upheld. To preserve the law, even at his own expense. He did what was right. He loved justice more than his own advancement. It sounds so easy in the story. But think about what he's saying. He's saying, I would rather spend another decade in the wilderness, in a desert, sleeping in a cave with people trying to kill me, than profit from the murder of these men. He prefers to do justice and follow what is right than profit from murder. To put it another way, David understands that in God's kingdom... The ends do not justify the means. The ends do not justify the means. You can't achieve a good end with a sinful act. That's something to ponder, isn't it? He knew that God was in control. He trusted God completely. God could make him king at any time. God does not need David to seize the kingdom. God does not need men to sneak in and kill Ishbosheth in his sleep. He doesn't need that. But God can do whatever he likes. God does not need David to seize the kingdom for him. What he's looking at is what kind of king David will be. More important than David snatching the kingdom from this man is whether he will do justice or not, even when it's his own hurt. Whether he will pursue righteousness or not, even when it's his own hurt. Even when he will stand up for the innocent and for the, for the weak, even at his own hurt. That's what he says to Ishbosheth's killers. He says, you killed an innocent man. My job is to defend the innocent man. That's what it means to be king. God's king is to defend the innocent and the weak. 
not to sanction their murder. He understood that God was more interested in his character and what kind of king he would be and how quickly he could get there. When we understand who God is and we desire his glory above everything else, we realise that how we behave, who we are, is at least as important as what we achieve. There is nothing you can achieve in your lives, my friends, that is more important than who you are while you do it. Let me put it another way. When I was a lawyer, uh, my uh, canon of heroes was enormous. If you came to mine and Heather's wedding, I don't think anyone here did. Sorry about that, you didn't get the invites. They must have got lost in the post. Our tables were named after famous lawyers. Some of them fictional, some of them real. So we had a run pole of the Bailey table. Yeah, we were geeks, okay? I'm not ashamed of it. I was a geek. We had a run pole of the Bailey table. We had tables named after real senior QCs, people whose lives changed the face of the law in this country. Every single one of them, brilliant, brilliant men, and they were all men, dead. The most influential judge of the 20th century was Lord Denning. He was one of the names on our tables. Some of you are nodding. I can see you remember Lord Denning. He gave fascinating and brilliant judgments. Most of them are now obsolete. The, the greatest judge of the 20th century in England, probably of the last 500 years, most of his life's work is now irrelevant. Denning was a Christian, however, and he understood that what he achieved was nothing compared to who he was. There is nothing that you can do with your lives that God, A, cannot do in an instant with the flick of his fingers, and B, will not perish 20 years after you die. So focus on who you are while you are doing it. Character is more important than achievement. Partly because God needs you to work. We're going to come on to that. You see, David is foreshadowing something we see in Jesus. That story of Jesus in the desert is exactly the same story as the one we were told about, Je- about David. See, Satan comes to him and he says to him, You can be king over all the earth. I have control over all the kingdoms of the world. And I can give them to whomever I choose. Don't you want them? Don't you want the honour and the power? Now this is a subtle temptation. Because Jesus is entitled to rule. He's the son of the most high God. He will rule over all the nations. St. Paul tells us one day every knee will bow. The devil is only promising Jesus something he already is promised. Just like David. David has been promised he will be king. And the men come to him and they say, well we can make you king much more easily. See, God has promised Jesus he will be king, he will be the Lord of all the nations. The plan is that Jesus will come and he will live and he will die and he will rise again. And defeat the devil and become king that way. And the devil comes to him and he says, oh, doesn't that seem like a lot of work? Doesn't that sound like a lot of pain? I can make it happen for you right now. 
There's a much easier way. It's so tempting, isn't it? It's just so reassuring. You can just take the shortcut. You'll still get where you're going. You'll get to where God promised you'd be. Just come with me. Just come with me. All you've got to do is bow down to me. Yet Jesus chooses not to take the shortcut. It's a remarkable choice if you think about it. What is he choosing when he does that? I've read that story so many times. I, mean, I don't know how, how many of you have read that story more than once. It's remarkable what he's doing. See, on the one hand, he's giving up something he's actually due that's a good thing. He's giving up the right to be the king of the nations at that point. Which is his right. It's his, legitimately. He's also saying, actually, I would choose to die rather than do this. Jesus is saying to Satan, I choose to walk with people and to die as one of them rather than bow down to you. I choose to suffer rather than bow down to you. I choose to be rejected rather than bow down to you. It's an extraordinary choice to descend into hell itself rather than bow down to you. Why does he do it? Why did David say no to Ishbosheth's murders and to Saul's? Well, I want to suggest there are two reasons. One is that they both wanted the glory of God before anything else. The one thing you cannot do is glorify God and bow down to the devil. You can't do it. In the words of the inestimable Bob Dylan, you've got to choose to serve somebody. But David had to choose who he would serve as king. Would he serve himself or would he serve God and the people? Would he protect the innocent or would he pursue his own power? Jesus had to choose. Would he bow down to his father or would he bow down to Satan? And he said it's a choice you have to make. And they both desired the glory of God above everything else. Second thing I would suggest, the second reason why they did it was love. Love. For you and me. In David's case, for the people of Israel. Why do I say that? Well, what the people needed was a king who would do what was right. The people needed a man after God's own heart. The people did not need another king who was self-serving murderer. They'd had one and it had led the nation to a disaster. They needed a king who would do what God wanted. What about Jesus? What the people of the world needed was not another, another great Messiah who would bow down to the devil. What they needed was somebody who would defeat the devil on their behalf. Love. Jesus could obtain the rule over all the nations, but he could not do it and free you and me. He chose the path that would set us free. He chose the path that would bring us forgiveness, even when it hurt him to do so. Love. 
To take the shortcut would have saved him a whole suffering world's worth of pain. But it would not have honoured his father and it would not have freed us from the curse of sin and death. It would not have defeated the evil that blights our world. He would have granted the evil victory. Instead he chose the long way around. The path of pain, suffering, darkness, love and light and hope. So as we come to apply these passages from the lives of David and Jesus, I want to suggest to you the Holy Spirit is searching each one of our souls this morning. He's looking to heal them and to bring them closer to God. I said that I would answer three things. First of all, how does David show us to respond to God? How does David show us Jesus? And thirdly, why do we need Jesus? Well, I would suggest the answer to why we need Jesus is in these two stories. The same evil keeps on happening over and over again. This is fashionable to imagine, or at least it was fashionable one time, I don't know whether it still is, to imagine evil as being something that lurks within the heart of a few individuals where if only we could purge them from our society then it would be okay. You get a version of this in every debate I ever, I've ever encountered. If only we could lock the criminals all up, it would be fine. If only we could get rid of the foreigners, it would be fine. If only we could purge the parliament of the Tories or of Labour or of the Liberals, it would be fine. If only there were no Remainers or Brexiteers, it would be fine. If only, uh, if only, if only, if only, if only the others were gone, it would be fine. The first four chapters of Second Samuel demonstrate that that is the most wishful thinking in the world. It would not be fine because I would still be left. If I get rid of you, there's still me, and I'm a problem. Or if you get rid of me, there's still you, and you're a problem. David executes one murderer who tries to assassinate his political enemies and bring him the crown, and literally two more spring up in his place. We need something else. We need the victory that Jesus won over the cross. We need Jesus. We need a new heart. So how should we respond to this? How should we go about responding to this message of a new heart? Well, first of all, I want to suggest that the answer is don't take shortcuts. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, and you will face, at times, a temptation to do something you know is wrong, even to achieve something you know is right, or just... Let me give you an example from the workplace. I don't know about anybody's work situation here, so I'm not picking on you. If, you, if this applies to you, I'm sorry, but God knew, not me. It can be a situation where you're in a workplace and everybody's fiddling their bonuses. And you are under pressure to fiddle your bonus. And indeed, your bonus will be smaller because everybody else is fiddling theirs. And so you're just taking what's rightfully yours. And the temptation is, well, I'll just tweak my hours a little bit. I'll just add one here and take one off there. I'll just massage the figures a little bit. I'll just give myself a generous interpretation of what I'm entitled to. Because it's what's mine, really. It's a shortcut. I'm about to fill out my self-assessment tax form. Now, who among you knows how many books I've bought this year? I mean, I could obtain a tax break just by adding on a couple of encyclopedias. Who would know? Who would know? And after all, we need the money. Who would know? 
It's just so easy. Just reach out and take the crown. What about at school or the school gates when there's a really bitchy mum? And she's been slagging you off behind your back. It's only just that she gets a bit of her own treatment. So just, uh, I'll start by engaging by laughing at somebody else being mean about her. And then maybe I'll just tie a little kick in the shins. Nothing too major. Just put her back in her place. I'll just reach out and take the crown. You know, that temptation can affect us whether we're young or we're old. Now, I am, you know, benefits. Benefits is another classic one. Nobody understands the benefits system, not even the DWP. Right? Fiendishly complicated, immorally so. I imagine it's very easy just to tick a different box. Ever so easy. It's just a flick. And after all, I need the money. And the crown's just there. Why not just reach out and take the crown? Just bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. My friends, don't take shortcuts. Let God be God and you follow him. Second, trust God. How can I say that? How can I say this when people are struggling? When life is hard and it might be that you need to take a shortcut, you feel you need to take a shortcut. You know, David must have thought about that as he was in a cave. Where, is my, where am I going to live? Where am I, how am I going to feed my men? Where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to use the toilet? What about a king thing? I, I just need to take the shortcut. The answer was that David trusted that God could do what he'd promised. God, David trusted that God could do what he promised. Even if David didn't make it happen. It might be difficult to see right now, but God has promised, if you are a Christian this morning, has promised to care for you and to work for your good in every situation. That's what we thought about last week. Romans 8.28 In all things, God is working for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He's promised to work for your good. He will work for your good. So trust him to do it, even if you can't see it at the moment. You might be in the middle of the desert, like Jesus, with no food and no water. I cannot imagine a more difficult time to trust God. But make that choice and the food and water will appear. That's the end of that story with Jesus, by the way. I'm not saying that angels will come and give you food and water. But Jesus is in a place where it's impossible for him to survive. He chooses to trust God and God miraculously provides for him. God will do it for you. The same God who made David the greatest king in Israel's history and raised Jesus from the dead is working in you. So trust him. Finally, pursue holiness above everything. Your character is more important than what you achieve. Because God wants to use you. This isn't me saying God doesn't want to use you. If you are here and you're wondering what's the purpose of my life, God wants to use you to be a man of God or a woman of God in your situation. Maybe in your work. He might raise you up to political prominence. He might make you a father or a mother. He might bring you into a community of friends, a stroke club or wherever. He wants you to be there as his David in that situation. But he needs you to bear the character of Jesus for him to do it. Who you are is more important than what you can achieve. 
Because God wants to use you. Jesus did what was right, even when it hurt him. And he did it for you. So don't be tempted to take shortcuts.